All right, Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and do not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of the, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you are the inspirer of the scriptures. And that through them we hear the voice of God, the I am, the ever-present, the unchanging one speak to us. So as Dan has already prayed, would you prepare our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the movie, A Few Good Men, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup ordered a lieutenant to order two privates to perform a code red. And so they snuck into his room and shoved a rag in his mouth and held him down and beat him. The point was to train him. It was to send a strong message. Get with the program. Toughen up. But in the process of the rag being placed in his mouth, the private died. And the case went to trial. And since we are well past any, uh, you know, uh, spoiler alerts, uh, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup's the one who gets held accountable. Even though he's four or five levels removed from the crime. The reason being is that authority rolls downhill. Authority flows downhill. And that is the title for our sermon this morning. I think we'll have a slide showing up here in a moment. Maybe. Uh, So, authority flows downhill. The first point is introducing Titus, the God who never lies. And then there's faith, knowledge, and hope through preaching. Character trumps giftedness. 
elders versus false teaching. That's the third point. And the fourth point is to the pure, all things are pure. Yes, Baptists can preach four-point sermons. All right. Here's our first point. Introducing Titus and the God who never lies. That authority flows downhill. This idea, I would argue, it shapes the entire letter to Titus, and particularly the first chapter. The reason being is that the form this letter takes was the kind of letter that one would have written to hand to a senior governor, would have handed to a junior governor. So you're a junior governor, and you're going to set up your rule. You'd go to your more senior governor friend, and he'd write you a letter saying all these wonderful things about you. So you would have some authority, as it were, in this new post. That's what Paul is doing. So he opens with Paul, the apostle, and he's handing this letter to Titus, handing the baton of ministry, as it were. Titus was to be able to take this letter, and if somebody says, who do you think you are coming in here and mixing stuff up? Well, I'm acting on the orders of the apostle Paul. It was his letter of authority. Authority rolls downhill. Maybe for the younger generation, this is Titus's version of, here's my receipts. Uh, if you're older and don't know what that means, ask one of the younger people. Um, but that's what he's doing. Here's my proof. Here's my evidence. Authority that I have flows from Paul. So the main overarching theme, though, so that's what, how the letter functioned, was this passing on of authority. But the main theme of Titus would be this. The ESV Study Bible puts it well. There is an inseparable link between faith and practice, between belief and behavior. You cannot separate the two. And so, as we think through this unbreakable link between sound doctrine, the teaching, and faithful living, the question comes, well, whose authority establishes sound doctrine? Because if authority flows downhill, where does it stop? How high up do we have to go? And that takes us to verse 1 and 2. So verse 1 and 2 with me again. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So he said that Paul wrote this letter to establish Titus's authority in that area. But did you catch the first thing Paul does? He seeks to establish his own authority. Paul, the apostle of God, my authority goes all the way up. Because authority ro- flows downhill. Paul is granting Titus only the authority that God has granted to him. He's passing on the baton. But this brings up a quick side point of application. We always have to be so cautious and aware of who it is that we are allowing to speak as authorities into our lives. Because the thing is, everyone who claims any sort of authority, whether it's a tweet or a book or a newscast or whatever it is, They're making an argument, and they're grounding their authority in something else. So where are they grounding their authority? Who's the ultimate authority? Who's the man behind the man, as it were? That's why the president's title is the commander-in-chief, because every command in the armed services ultimately flows back, in a sense, to him and the ultimate authority, which is flowing downhill. So you always have to ask questions. Who says who? I mean, who says it's, it's, the, it's the playground word, right? It's the grand says who. These are the rules for the game. Says who? Uh, who is their authority? So that's one of the questions this letter would push to you to think about in your daily life. Well, Titus's ultimate authority was God. But did you notice? Titus's ultimate authority is not just any God. Did you hear how this God was, de- was defined, was explained? 
He's the God who never lies. Now, I just, I hope you grab that. Like, what? That's the strangest thing in the world Paul could have said. You know who my God is? He's a God who doesn't lie. That's what he's doing. I mean, it's a really weird description when you think about it. Because elsewhere, Paul will speak of father and son and spirit in soaring language. But here he's like, yeah, my boy Titus, he's got authority from me, and I got authority from, you know, the God who doesn't fib. It's just a strange kind of thing, the more you think about it, is it not? Well, there's a reason, and it was a cultural reason going on in Crete. Look down at verse 12 and the first part of verse 13 with me. It's the one that we laughed at. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, yep, that testimony is true. So notice, there was a culture of lying, as it were, in Crete. That repetition now stands out. Whereas God never lies, the Cretans always lie. Uh, In fact, there was a Greek word, kretizo, You can hear Crete in there. It was coined because they were such dirty, rotten liars that they came up with the word. You're a Cretizo. You're a liar. You're a Cretan. You liar. And this word, the God who never lies, would have instantly caught them because it flowed around in their cultural literature of the day. But see, the the Cretans told stories about the gods, of course. In particular, there were stories about the Greek god Zeus, who had come down to visit Crete. And many had considered him the epitome of virtue. Uh, You read some of those stories. I think you doubt that. But this is what they say. Well, the problem was one of the famous stories was that Zeus lied. He showed up and he took the form of this woman's husband, lying to her, deceiving her so he could sleep with her. And similarly, the Cretans followed Zeus's pattern. They too were liars. Because then they went around saying, oh, by the way, Zeus is is, uh, buried here on Crete. But even the ancient writers say, no, that was a dirty lie. There was a culture of lying, and it has actually made its way into the church. And so Paul opens up with this very unique descriptor, you know, God who never lies, to demonstrate that God stands over and against culture, that God stands over and against the idols and the preferences and the the habits of our day. He opens the letter to show that the God who grants him authority, who grants Titus authority, is the God who stands against the lying of the little g-gods. He's a dichotomous god. You can't have a toe in the world of Zeus and a toe in the world of the great god who never lies. That would be dishonest. So, this is how Paul opens his letter, speaking directly into the culture of the day. Now, I would love to spend some more time thinking about what does that look like in our day? How is it that God speaks specifically into and against and over our culture There are many great conversations which you can have, or I'd love to speak with you afterwards on that. But that's introducing this series, because for the next three weeks, we're going to be spending time in the book of Titus, chapter 1, 2, 3, 1 each week. And we're thinking of this God who never lies, speaking to a people who always lie. But let's dig into chapter 1 here. So I want to back up and look at verses 1 through 4 together. This is our second point, faith, knowledge, and hope through preaching. Verses 1 through 4. Once again, feel the flow of the passage here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, 
my true child in a common faith. Did you catch Paul's thesis for this first chapter? Did you catch it? Paul is writing for the faith of God's elect and for their knowledge of the truth according to godliness and in the hope of eternal life. That's Paul's thesis that he's going to lay out here and he's going to defend. That's his goal is to accomplish the faith, the knowledge, and the hope of the church there. What might be startling, though, is how he plans on doing that. Did you see how in verse 2 and 3? He's writing for these reasons because God has manifest himself through preaching. That's an interesting thing. We don't tend to think about it that way. But this is Paul's argument. God strengthening the faith of the saints, his growing them in the knowledge of the truth and in the hope of eternal life is primarily brought about through the preaching ministry in the local church. Not podcasts, not blogs, not personal Bible reading, not through personal or family devotions or worship, not through theology books, and not through speaking to us directly. Of course, God can and does use all those things. But the only time we can authoritatively say, thus says the Lord, and know it's him, it's from his word. And the primary means God has chosen to use to speak to his people and accomplish his will of growing them as disciples is the preaching ministry in the local church. I hope that blows your mind a little bit. That the most important thing for a Christian to do each week is to re-behold the beauty of Christ in the preached word. I would say a Christian detached from that week in and week out sitting under the preached word has cut off from the spiritual oxygen that gives them life. Now, I'm not alone in this. The reformers spoke boldly about preaching. Here's just a couple quotes. I could multiply these. Luther wrote this. When you hear a sermon by St. Paul or by me, you hear God the Father himself. And yet, you do not become my pupil, but the Father's. For it is not I who is speaking, it is the Father. We both, pastor and listener, are the pupils of God himself who deals with us and speaks to us. That's an incredibly high view of preaching. Here's Calvin. There is nothing that should stir us up to embrace the teaching of the gospel more than to learn that the preeminent worship of God is to hear him speaking by the mouth of men and to submit ourselves to his word as it is brought by men, no less than if he himself came down from heaven or had revealed his purpose by an angel. Those are grandiose quotes. Those are huge. But notice, Luther and Calvin and the rest of the reformers were reading Paul. They were reading Paul. That preaching is how God accomplishes his work building the faith, of growing the knowledge, and building the hope of his people. In their book, Why the Reformation Still Matters, the authors put it this way, speaking about the importance of preaching. They said, here's the irony. Many people today are desperate to hear the voice of God. They become obsessed with prophecies, dreams, and words of knowledge. And yet week by week, God is speaking to them in the preaching of the church. What we need to do is, as Luther put it, gradually train our hearts to believe That the preacher's words are God's words. Now, just to cut the tension, I'm uncomfortable reading these things because I'm standing up here preaching. 
The reformers had an incredibly high view of preaching, and we have just lost that today. But understand that this is what the reformers based the Reformation on. Sola scriptula, and on the preaching of the word as the instrumental cause of the Reformation. So again, I realize quoting these things might seem self-serving, but here's where I want to make sure you understand that we believe authority rolls downhill. So our goal as preachers is never to give you something new, but rather to show you in the text and have you walk away and be like, it was there all along. It was right there in the text all the time. And I see it better now. If we do our job right as preachers, that's what we're aiming at. And I want to make sure you see it right there in those verses. Paul writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised beforehand that at the proper time he manifested in his word through preaching. I don't know how else to understand the text, friends. But that is the call to all Christians to sit under the preached word week in and week out. So to summarize where we've been, since authority flows downhill, since God's word is God speaking, him revealing himself, then God charged Paul and Paul passed the baton to Titus and Titus is about to pass the baton to the elders. As we'll see in this next section, character trumps giftedness. This is the elders versus the false teachers. We're going to read five through the end of the chapter so you catch the flow of what's going on here. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So we now move on in verse 5 to see the central reason why Paul authorized Titus, and that was to set up elders. Now, uh, just as a side note here, first it says elders, that's the presbyteros. It says overseers, that's episkopos, so to my Episcopalian and Anglican friends, I don't see a difference. You do, but I don't see it. Paul seems to think they were the same thing. He lumps them together. That's a side note. The point, though, is that Titus is there to set up elders, plural, leaders in the church. And why does he do this? Well, you're going to see in the flow of this text, but We can't go into all the details of these things, unfortunately, since we're just doing a flyby of this book. So I want to show you two main things that are taking place in this big section here. 
Okay? The first thing is how Paul starts with the emphasis on the character of the elders. Did you notice that? Verses 5 through 8, and the first part of 9 even, is all character. It's the type of man who's supposed to be an elder. It's, it's all character. Now, what they do is spelled out in verse 9, that they hold forth, they, they teach in sound doctrine, but it's an issue of character. And here's why. If, from the first four verses, preaching is that important, then the character of the messenger matters. Because many, many, many have denied the message through their character. Many have preached a message and then gone on to deny that very message with choices and life decisions. Hebrews 3.14 puts it this way. We have come to share in Christ if we hold fast our original confidence firm until the end. Or take Francis Schaeffer in his great little book, True Spirituality. He put it this way. In one way, physical birth is the most important part of our physical life because we are not alive to the external world until we've been born. But in another way, however, it is the least important aspect of our life because it is only the beginning and then it is past. He turns and applies that to the Christian life. He says, well, of course you have to be born again. Of course you have to come to repent and believe in Jesus to become a Christian. You have to be justified by God, adopted into his family. Oh, yes. After one has become a Christian, the most important thing is to live, is to continue, is to press on, to endure. So that is what's going on here. The first five through nine is dealing with the character of the elders, the type of men who are qualified to do these types of leadings. But I'm going to apply this to the church, and here's why I think I can do that. Because guess what? There's nothing in the list of elder requirements which is shocking. Almost nothing. Everything in that list of things that elders are to be are said of all Christians elsewhere, except for maybe two, if you combine the lists of what elders are supposed to be. The two, the two that they say might be special is they say not everyone, you know, an elder cannot be a new believer, a new convert. Well, guess what? All Christians will no longer be new converts after a little while, so that's everybody. And then the second one is that they're able to teach. And I would say that that means that they, they've been tasked with the teaching ministry. But did you catch verse 9? Look again at verse 9. What it said this elder qualification, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Friends, I would every single Christian is holding firm to the trustworthy word as it is taught. Every single Christian is to encourage with the word and rebuke with the word. We are a congregational church. So the final court of appeals, you might say, when it comes to matters of church discipline, is not the pastors, it's the church. Assuming that you have the ability to rebuke, to reprove when needed. So that is nothing spectacular about these commands. Now, an elder is to give instruction, it says. Sure, of course. But an elder primarily is a man of character, who then also is called to teach the word to the people. Now, in particular, in this passage, did you catch what's going on? Paul lays out this, all this character first and that they're supposed to teach. Why? Because then he goes on and contrasts it with the false teachers in that area. So the second critical point made by Paul is that the elder's character should be exactly the opposite of the false teacher's character. That's why he lays those two things out side by side. So verse 6, Paul says, 
elders must not be open to a charge of insubordination. In verse 10, the false teachers are said to be insubordinate. Verse 7, elders are not greedy for gain. Verse 11, the false teachers are doing what they do for shameful gain. Same word in the Greek. So you see the contrast being made there? So here's another, here's another bold claim. Let me drink some water before I give it to you. Increase the anticipation. For Paul, then, the argument as it is unflowing through this passage, I would say this. The single most important protection that a Christian has against false teaching are biblically qualified elders in your local church who are faithfully teaching and preaching the word. That's the flow of his argument. Just keep reading the chapter. God authorized Paul, who authorized Titus, to authorize the elders to be men of character who preach the word and combat false teachers. To maybe put it a little more bluntly, as long as the elders of this church continue to submit to and proclaim the word rightly, then we are your God-ordained protection from false teaching. Now, again, I know how that sounds, so I have to unpack that a little bit. Because we live in an internet age. We live with access to so many incredible preachers, instantly available to so many encouraging things. But church, here's the thing. Members of the gathering church, there are no other pastors in the world who are praying for you week in and week out. By name. There are no other pastors in the world, members of the gathering church, who are looking at your faces in the membership directory when they're planning for a sermon and when they're writing a sermon and when they're reading the text and praying over it. Members of the gathering church, there are no other pastors in the world who are pleading with the Holy Spirit to reveal more and more of the love of God, as Paul says. None. Oh, you might have friend pastors, but this is what we have been called by God to do. Because along the line of the elders there in Titus, we are those receivers of that baton, as it were. And we will be held account for how we care for the members of this church. As a side note, that's why membership is so incredibly important. The elders of this church will not be held accountable for people who visit, for folks who show up once in a while. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to pray for you, we don't hope for you, but we will be held accountable for the members of this church. On the last day, we will stand and say, this is how I cared for those members of that church. So that's why membership is so critically important because God has built us and made us and formed us into a community. And so by staying on the outskirts, you will miss out on so much of what the church is in the assembly of the body of God's people in a local church. But back to my larger point, these abundance of teachers and, and access to so many great things. I mean, you could rattle off so many incredible teachers, Tim Keller, Don Carson, John Piper. I mean, I could go on and on. Thabiti Anyabwile, Vodi Bakum, Mark Dever, Lig Duncan. The list is endless. But here's the thing, church. The only men who intentionally care for my soul are the elders of this church. So when I'm sitting there waiting, listening to someone else preach, that's my pastor that is my preacher, and I want to hear what he says. Last week, I sat there as James faithfully unpacked Luke 15. And you know what? I knew Luke 15. I've preached it before. But you know what? I needed the reminder. I needed the reminder that so often I'm just like that sheep who ran away and is lost and is hopeless. And I had to be picked up by the Savior and carried back. I had to be reminded that I'm just like the younger brother, well, and the older brother too. Let's be real. 
Because so often I use God for his gift and not for him. I needed that. So when the men of this church, the elders of the church, get up here and preach, that's my pastor that I need to listen to. And the same would go for you. See, friends, the grass will always be greener on the other side. There will always be better looking, better dressed, better speaking, more funny. All those types. You can get that anywhere on the internet, on your phone. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that the most important pastors you'll ever know are the pastors who feed your soul each week and who pray for you week in and week out in the local church because they are tasked by God to protect you from false teachers, to warn against siren voices, and to point you to Jesus. Now, clearly this does not mean we'll never fail. Did you catch that the elder qualifications didn't say perfect? If there, that was a qualification, there would be no elders. No, no. Friends, we fail often. We need church discipline. Ask our wives. They will tell you. <laughs> Ask our triads. They will tell you. We continue in confessing sin. No, no, no. Of course. But, as one commentator as well said, the history of God's people is in many ways a history of its leaders, whether godly or ungodly. So church, pray for your pastors. Pray always regularly for your pastors. We need your prayers. Because if authority flows downhill, and that's what the text says, then our authority only extends so far as we are directly underneath. To quote the old children's thing, as long as we're standing under the spout where the glory comes out. Uh, we have to be there in line with the word. Okay? So, but this issue of authority does have a couple other implications. That the elders have been authorized by God to lead and protect the flock means that church members are called to submit. They're not recommended. It's not like a, you might want to consider it. It's a command. Submit. That's why Titus is to make such a big deal about the quality or the qualifications of the elders, that they are biblically qualified, men whose lives don't contradict their message. And their teaching is to be willingly and joyously followed because the elders are called to lead and the church is called to submit. Now, we are a congregational church, so there's also submission as well because as an elder, I'm also one of the members. So there's a mutual submission, yes. But here's just some practical ways to think through this. Assume the best about your elders. Like, assume we don't secretly have a devious plot uh, to, to turn the ship or something like that. That is a great thing to do. That's the practical way you submit to your elders is assume the best. And here's the thing. Along these lines, I'm so thankful for this church. I really just want to commend you all. I'm so thankful because we encourage you to come up and ask questions about the sermon. And you know what? I have had a number of people since I've been here come up with a question or a concern or a comment. And they have done a wonderful job of assuming that I'm not a demon secretly dressed up as a pastor. No, it's been wonderful. I love those conversations. And I have many just really encouraging things. So I commend you, Gathering Church. Thank you for the trust you've placed in us. And thank you for the way that you assume the best about it. Keep on. Keep going in it. So those are some implications of the authority of the elders in the local church. So one more time summarizing. God's authority hands it to Paul, hands it to Titus, and to the elders the elders are then the first line of defense against false teachers, and they're equipping the church with sound doctrine so the church can build each other up in love. So that's what we've covered so far. But there's a specific element of the false teaching here, which we have to talk about. Otherwise, the last two verses of this passage make no sense whatsoever. 
So in verse 10, you'll notice it talks about the circumcision party, speaking about Jews. And then verse 14, they were devoting themselves to Jewish myths. In other words, Titus is to equip the elders to specifically combat the Jewish sect or something. There was something that they were trying to smuggle in certain cleanliness laws and certain purity rituals into the church. And the fact that Paul writes and begins his letter, by the way, only the second letter that has no thanksgiving for them. It's just get down to business because he's authorizing him. But the reason that is, is because it seems these churches had sprung up, but they didn't have elders. They were there to protect the sheep. And so false teachers had snuck in and they were sneaking in this extra doctrine, this other stuff, probably some Jewish purity laws, like we said. So that brings us to our last point, to the pure, all things are pure. We'll look at verse 15, 16, one more time. To the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's a fascinating little thing how Paul is so brash in this letter. Did you catch that? Cretans, yes, they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's true. Uh, you know, they're detestable, disobedient. I mean, Paul's pretty sharp here, you can see. But you have to understand partially what he's doing is he's, he's also drawing on that other cultural element that there. So he dealt with the lying issue, but the other issue was this cultural element of the purity laws and the purification that they were sneaking in. We read that long passage from Leviticus 5 earlier. How many of you were wondering, why in the world are we le- reading 13 verses from Leviticus 5 at the beginning of a service? I'm just, I mean, again, all of scripture is God's word, but some of scripture's a little bit more helpful, maybe. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as a pastor, but then it's one of those things, right? Let's just be real. Here's why. There's a massive theme that runs through the Bible, and it starts back there, particularly in Leviticus, that in God's economy, there is only holy and unholy. There is only pure and impure, clean and unclean. That's why Leviticus 10 says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And did you notice in that Leviticus 5 reading, even if they accidentally bumped into something and then later they found out about it, they were dirty, right? That's, that's, I mean, it seems really intense. And here's the thing. In our modern world, that probably sounds ridiculous and off the chain. But I'm going to prove to you that our modern world does have this category. But in order to prove that to you, I got to tell you a story. So, A number of years ago, some of you will know that a number of years ago, about 12 years ago, my wife, Jessica, was diagnosed with a terminal illness. It was an incredibly rare condition. As a matter of fact, the reason she wears the fanny pack is not because they're stylish, although I attribute them coming back into style on the count that my beautiful wife has been wearing them for 12 years. (laughs) But instead, that fanny pack holds a pump, and that pump pumps medicine through her little toes that goes into a port that pumps right into her heart 24-7. Now, when she was first diagnosed, if that pump stopped, within 60 minutes, she was in critical condition. So you can imagine, we've had our fair share of ambulance rides and trips to the emergency department and time and weeks in the CCU, the critical care units, and emergency surgeries, and oh, the list goes on. One little quip about how rare her condition was. We were on vacation down in Southern California visiting my mom, and uh, we, something was wrong with our port, and we knew, okay, we have to have that changed. So we called an ambulance, and the ambulance came and picked us up and, and took her, and I followed along in the car. And we, we got there, 
And uh, we're sitting there, and like between us and the main like doctor station was this big open space. And we hear the doctor come over, like the head emergency department doctor, and he picks up the phone. And he goes, yeah, so what's a primary pulmonary arterial hypertension? And I'm like, I nudge Jess. I'm like, he's talking about you. Like, he, he doesn't know what you have. And sure enough, we sit and he's like, really? <laughs> huh. Okay. And what's flow land medicine? Huh. No kidding. So do you know what they need? No. Okay. Like, so he comes walking up to us. Do you guys know what you need? Yeah, we know what we need. You need to take this out. You know, anyway, this whole big thing. That's how rare her condition was. I could tell you other stories like that as well. But so here's the thing. We've spent a lot of time in hospitals. And hospitals still understand pure and impure. Particularly in critical care units. Because see, in critical care units, they have these two rooms. One is called a positive pressure room. And one of them is a negative pressure room. The positive pressure room exists so that no contaminant from outside can come in. Because the patient's immune system is so weak that anything could kill them. So it's constantly pressing, pressure, positive. It's pushing out so nothing can get in. And the opposite of the negative pressure room. It's constantly pulling in so that nothing from inside can get outside. Because nobody wants what they have. Friends, that is exactly what those weird long passages in Leviticus are dealing with today. They were meant to be the big, bold signs you see in the ICU. Positive pressure, warning. Negative pressure, warning. They're caution signs where God says, this will destroy your soul. Stay away. Be careful. Now we think, but wait a minute. What about, I mean, you know, it said like human. uh, That's a whole big other conversation, which we'll have to talk about how the purity theme works out. But it all fits under the grid of in God's economy, it is either holy or it is unholy. It is either clean or it is unclean. And so when Paul writes to the pure, all things are pure. There's a deep irony here because these false teachers were so passionate about purity. And yet, notice what he attacks, their character. They had a doctrine of purity, but they didn't have a character to go with it. Doctrine and character, belief and life fit together. So these false teachers on Crete were consumed with all this minutia, and yet they were living this way. So there's a point of passing application here. This is one of those things that so often can cause us trouble as well, is that we downplay or we do not take the time to really think seriously about certain things. We just let them pass. We walk the negative pressure room and just, ah, no big deal. If you accidentally walk into one of those rooms, you might be responsible for someone's death. And there are things in life that are calling us, pay attention. Questions like, the meaning of life? What's, it, what's the point? What is it all here for? Where is it all going? What happens when I die? One pastor has put it very pointedly when he said this, friends, let's be honest. Some of you give more time to your pets or your car or your hobbies or your physical appearance than to your eternal soul. How do you think that investment will work out for you? Let me ask you, if you're here today and you're a Christian, is God in the church an add-on? Does it comfortably fit somewhere on the shelf? Or is it the grid, the paradigm, the controls? Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Do you ever take the time to really sit and think and consider? Does your daily routine, is it going to matter in five years? And 50? If there's 5,000? Do you think about those things? Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time considering death 
because that's where chapter two goes. But if you have questions on these things and you'd like to learn more, I can recommend a book to you after the service. I'll be sitting out in the hallway. I'd, I'd love to speak with you further. But back to our text. Again, there's this odd wording there. It says that to the pure, all things are pure. Notice, Paul, not like Leviticus, is not saying things make you pure or impure. He's saying you either are impure or pure. There's been a shift. There's been a shift. What's going on here? Well, again, to illustrate this, I'm going to tell one more story. So, Old Testament laws, everything, you can get, you can get dirty or impure from all sorts of countless things. But then Jesus comes and things start to change. And in Mark 5, there's this incredible story of a woman with a 12-year flow of blood. Now, we read from Leviticus 5, what happens if she touches someone else? That person, according to the Old Testament laws, would be impure. They'd be unclean. So she knows this. So she sneaks up to just touch the hem of his garment because she believes, as Dan said, she knows the object of her faith that Jesus is enough. So she goes up and she touches the hem of his robe and she says instantly she knows she's healed. She's been made pure. For the first time, the pure isn't made impure, but the impure is made pure. But then to her horror, Jesus stops. And he says, wait a minute, who touched me? Now, the other gospels say there were so many people around him, his disciples were like, bro, really? Like, people are touching you all over. You've got to stop. And he goes, no, I felt power come out from me. And so she comes and he says she casts herself before him and she's crying on the ground and she's explaining her 12-year flow of blood and how touching the hem of his robe had healed him. And here's what's stunning. Jesus says this. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, Jesus pushes back impurity. That's why Paul can say it's not a matter of becoming pure or becoming impure. We are all impure. And you need a touch from the Savior to be made pure. To the pure All things are pure. To those who have been made pure because Jesus' presence pushes off the impurity. It casts it away. So friends, Paul's going to go on in the rest of this letter, the two chapters, to basically say, if you are a Christian, if you have spent time with Jesus and have been made pure, you're going to live this way because you can't spend time with Jesus and continue to be impure. And yet we live in a sinful world. So we have to come back week in and week out and re-behold the glory of our king in the scriptures. So friends, that is Paul's argument from Titus 1. If you've been in the presence of Jesus, you're not going to continue to be impure. If you are sitting under the preached word, then you are sitting under God speaking because he has authorized it and he is speaking today. And he would say, come again. Come in here. Come and see the provision given for us. And my son, who I sent to take on your impurity so that he could take it off of you. Would you pray with me?